This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Keith Allen Howie still carries his tape recorder with him, just in case he sees someone he'd like to interview. Someone camped out on a park bench, maybe. Someone in military garb. Howie just finished his master's thesis on homeless veterans. For about a year, Howie carried that tape recorder around, and he interviewed 10 men, veterans who are currently homeless or have been homeless at some point. Howie asked them to tell their life stories. He said he wanted to allow them to say whatever they thought was important. He brought those interviews together into a thesis and picked out the common themes in the stories he heard. He was trying to figure out, as he put it, how the military creates the conditions for homeless veterans. One minute, these individuals were the national heroes, and then the next, they're homeless. So there seems to be some kind of disjunct, and I just wanted to find out what that was. Any, any uh, clues so far as to what it is? From the 10 interviews, which you really can't make any generalizations, um, but it, it seems like um, the way that the um, initial process of basic training and stuff um, occurs, there's a resocialization process where they kind of relearn all their life skills, um, kind of learn how to depend on individuals differently. This is when somebody enters the military. Yeah, during basic training. And it, it really goes on throughout the, the whole military process. The further they go into the process, the more they start identifying with their MOS, which is their, their occupation during the um, military. MOS um, is just your job title? Yeah, military occupation specialty. Um, artillery, military police, um, stuff like that. So the more you go into the, the military, the more you start identifying with this MOS. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of banter about whose MOS is better, um, and it just shows that there's a different way of going about talking to people and a different trust among people, and that's really started at basic training. Um, and then what I also found was there's a lot of uncontrolled alcohol and drug abuse um, just because there's a lot of downtime in the military. Um, and one of the biggest ways for the trust of soldiers um, to be increased is through um, alcohol and, and drug culture to the point where they make drinking games and stuff like that, um, kind of like fraternities type type drinking games. And then a couple other things that I found was the communications, like when an individual goes on off to basic training or to war, initially there's a lot of letters and they really have a, it's kind of like the romanticized Hollywood version of like Jenny writing Forrest Gump, like the letters. Um, but after a while, those letters kind of get mundane, and the, the special the special feeling that the soldier gets is no longer there. So then they stop talking to the people at home, um, and then just the the prolonged separation. Um, a lot of military members might get like two weeks of leave every year, and sometimes they don't even go back home because they go um, travel um, to Europe and stuff on the on military flights. So all of this stuff kind of are the the conditions of military service that when individuals come back and try to reintegrate into um, normal society, they don't really have the ability to talk to their friends, families, or just individuals that would help them get a job, help them secure housing, um, help them stay away from deviant behaviors. So then they start hanging out with um, deviant cultures. Pretty much all of the interviewees that I had um, got into some kind of drug network. Not a drug network, but a deviant network. Um, what one, do you mean by a deviant network? Um, one it's not was, something you hear tossed around yeah, a lot. <laughs> a deviant network would just be um, a group of individuals that really can't be relied on to give you social support or resources that you that would help you benefit. 
Just a bad crowd. Yeah, pretty much. That that's the the, the easy way to say it. Um, um, some joined the drug trade. Some got into gangs. Um, some just started um, hanging around with people that were doing drugs and stuff like that. So eventually, they would start doing bad things. Lost all the savings that they gained from the military and didn't have anyone to help them with the financial support that they needed or the opportunities that they could get, like jobs or cheap housing and stuff like that. So eventually it led to a downward spiral of their homelessness. You said before the social supports are, are completely disrupted. Yeah, what somebody... happens is normally um, individuals that don't go into um, the military, they can go off to college, they can start families, they can um, reestablish new networks or continue their old networks. Um, even if you go to college, you can always go back and you can talk to people. But in the meantime, you're also creating new friendships in college. Um, the military really disrupts that process. And even though they do create friendships in the military, um, once they're discharged from the military, they don't continue those friendships. So, so why is that? Why is the discharge process so abrupt? Well, well, one of the things is, is during graduation, say at a college, everyone's graduating at the same time. So um, everyone's pretty much doing the same process at the same time. Um, they're going on starting new careers at the same time. Um, with the discharge process from the military, it's an individual act. So one person's getting discharged now, but the other's still in the military. And then the other's in the military and someone gets um, uh, dishonorably discharged or something like that. So it's, it's a lot to do with the fact that some people are still in the military, some people are getting out. But you don't move as a team. You don't yeah, move as you, a class. There's they, no class of 94. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, during basic training there is, but after that you go on to your own uh, duty stations and then you change around, and there's no real classes. It's just an individual person going in through where they're needed. Um, and then another thing is a lot of individuals with dishonorable discharges um, because of their drug use in the military or because they went AWOL or something, they feel like they left on a bad note, so they don't want to associate themselves with the military anymore, which also affects their ability to get the benefits of the VA. Um, and then um, there was one individual who had two tours of Iraq in Iraq during his first enlistment, and then he had to think about reenlisting. So he had to choose between reenlisting and probably going back to Iraq or Afghanistan or leaving the military. So he was kind of... Because he had no... Why? Well, he, he liked the military, but okay. he just didn't want to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan. So that created some personal identity problems where even though he qualifies, he feels like he's not worthy enough or he let the military down. So he doesn't go for the benefits. Or he didn't go for the benefits. Just because he didn't re-up his contract. Yeah. So the, the discharge process, it, even if you have dishonorable or honorable, there's just something that you feel like you're not living up to the expectations of the military. You're letting it down. You left on a bad note. Um, and it's an individual process. So there's no, once you're discharged from the military, you can't go back and get those social supports. I'm, I'm curious. Now, now you're a veteran. I am a veteran. Obviously, that has something to do with picking a project that focuses so closely on veterans. How did it affect this project? Well, the, the original reason I wanted to study veterans is to see how the military benefits individuals. Um, I come from a fairly 
working class background. And I feel like I've succeeded because of the military. So that was my initial impetus to study veterans. But after I went out in the field, um, started talking to some people, seeing what was actually happening, I, I thought it would be better to understand how individuals like myself didn't succeed. One of the big things that occurred is as I was interviewing a fairly young gentleman that just got back from Iraq is he could have been in my position and I could have been in his position. So it's really hard to interview someone so close to your social position, but so far. Like I could have been homeless and he could have been studying me. So it's kind of emotionally difficult. And that was one of the, the problems that I ran into with trying to collect more more interviews because I realized that if it was difficult for me, it had to be difficult for them. And as a master's student, even if I wrote a paper, it may not be seen as reputable because I'm only a master's. So I really limited it to 10, um, hoping that if I get into uh, school for a PhD, um, then if I write an article with more than 10 people, then it'd be more, more accepted. That's what I'm trying to say. So I think as a master's student, 10 was okay, but I didn't want to go on because it really wouldn't benefit them enough. Um, and I think it was because of my emotional attachment to it that really made me think about it that way. That's Keith Allen Howie, who just finished a master's thesis on homeless veterans in New York. Howie himself is an Army veteran. He served in Iraq as a military police specialist. Coming up after the break... And then I'm always thinking, like, what is your story? Are you a veteran? Should I? Because I always carry around my tape recorder. And I'm always wondering, like, Still. should... Yeah. I'm always thinking, like, should I try to interview them? That's in a minute on Fordham Conversations. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, and my guest is Keith Allen Howie. He just finished a master's thesis on homeless veterans. How did you find a lot of the veterans that you interviewed? I emailed a lot of um, organizations that worked with homeless veterans or veterans or homelessness. And one organization um, said, hey, we have this this presentation. Would you like to sit on it? So. So I sat down on it and kind of took notes and stuff. And that just means kind of making yourself just a fly on the wall. Yeah, kind of just watching how people interact with one another. Um, what are the, the symbols that people rotate around? And What did you see when you sat in on that one presentation? Um, you said symbols. So what were yeah, you Yeah, the of? symbols, like, kind of, they had art on the wall. And it was a lot of lighthouses. And and these were these were veterans that were homeless because of... Um, alcohol and drug abuse. So there was a lot of feeling isolated, um, and I think that's one of the big things that struck me. These veterans were part of this group, and now they're isolated, and now they have all these problems. And then there's, at least in this organization, they were trying to reconstruct the military lifestyle. 
everyone wearing civilian type uniforms, like really nice khakis and shirt and ties and stuff like that. It was kind of like they were trying to relive their military days. They couldn't get away from that. There were groups that were artillery base and they all had artillery MOSs and they would talk about like the MPs and, or the military police officers. Um, so it was kind of like that little banter that really played a big part in their military service. Guys talking about MOS yeah, again. Yeah, they kind of reverted back there and kind of just tried to get back into the military lifestyle. Eventually I initially picked up a couple interviews from uh, that organization. Did you just walk up to guys and say, hey, I'm working on this project. Can um, you help me? Well, actually, the, the program director kind of helped me introduce myself. So she was very um, helpful in um, getting people to initially open up to me. Um, but then some people were like, oh, I want to talk to you or can I talk to you? Um, and then I went around to other organizations that really dealt with homelessness, um, kind of like soup kitchens. I volunteered at a lot of uh, New York City-based soup kitchens and stuff like that, just to kind of get a feel of the general homeless population as well as if there was a difference between them and the veteran population. Um, and then whenever they would sit down, I would make an announcement and say, I'm doing this project. I'm looking for homeless veterans to talk to. If anyone wants to talk to me, I'll be around. So I got like three other ones from that way. And then the last two I got were from um, individuals that weren't from from a soup kitchen or anything. I would just walk around um, trying to find individuals that... Just walking around New York. Yeah, so... So you would be... I mean, so you had a couple different ways of, of finding people to interview. Mm -hmm. um, does it Does it make it different? So when you walk down the street now and you see somebody sitting off to the side, are you kind of looking in the faces of people that you that you pass and just going, I wonder if you're a veteran. People who look like they're, you know, they're not waiting for a bus. People who look like they're there for a few hours or yeah. a few days. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really opened my eyes to the, the homeless situation. And then I'm always thinking, like, what is your story? Are you a veteran? Should I? Because I always carry around my tape recorder. And I'm always wondering, like, should, yeah. I'm always thinking, like, should I try to interview them for my PhD thesis? But it always comes down to that emotional distress that I felt. And I, I'm kind of like, I, I kind of don't feel like doing that to them as well as myself, especially if I'm not sure if what they're going to tell me is going to be used in some kind of PhD, reputable journal type thing. Can you, can you explain that to me? I'm, I'm not there. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the stories that I've, I've got um, have been pretty heart-wrenching. Um, listening to people go through the military process as one of their the happiest moments of their life. And then just listening to their downward spiral into homelessness. It's just a lot of their stories could probably be made into like lifetime movie, dramatic, like Oscar winning dramas or whatever. But as a sociologist that is taking interviews, you kind of have to keep a straight face. Because if, if you're taking an interview and you like make some facial motions or something like that, they might not lie, but kind of put more emphasis on that certain area. So what I try to do is just kind of talk to them, kind of just probe them along as they would tell their story rather than trying to look at me, watching them to kind of make a better story. In a lot of these stories, is the experience of going to Iraq or Afghanistan, is that the war or is the war coming home and not, not knowing who your friends are anymore and having to transition back into civilian life? Um, well, I mean, the, there was five individuals that went to war. Um, so I didn't out of actually, the ten that you interviewed. out of the ten, yeah, 
a lot of them didn't see it as a war coming back. It was a gradual downhill cycle, and they didn't think anything was wrong. They thought when they came back, they were hanging out with their friends. They didn't understand that these friends that they made after they came back, um, when they started hanging out with the wrong crowd uh, or the deviant networks, they didn't see them as deviant. They thought that they were their friends, like typical friends. And they didn't see that they were making friends with people that couldn't help them. Like a gang, they, the one joined a gang and he's like, yeah, they were my friends. Some people were like, yeah, I hung out with the, the drug dealers all the time and stuff like that. So it's not like they thought it was a war. They just saw it as a gradual decline that was kind of typical. So I wouldn't say that they thought it was a war. It's almost sensationalized to say that the war after the war, like it's kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe it as a war, especially as someone that has seen combat and they would never describe it as a war after the war. But the media really portrays it as the war after the war. Half of the um, individuals that I interviewed started the downhill process in um, the military if they went into combat or not. Um, some individuals, because of the culture of drugs and alcohol, they started doing drugs, they started doing alcohol, or they continued their previous drug and alcohol problems. Um, with the military, I found if you can do your job, there's not really any repercussions about doing drugs or doing alcohol. But once you can no longer perform your, your duties, that's when your commander, your sergeants, um, whoever's above you will start talking to you and being like, you have to quit drinking, you have to check yourself, not even quit drinking, just relax on the drinking, relax on the drug use. And then if you continue to not do your, your job, then eventually you get discharged. And that started a lot of the problems for about half of individuals that I interviewed. And then the other half was people that were discharged normally, went back to their hometown, they started hanging out with people that they wouldn't hang out with, um, and then that started their downward process. You mentioned that interview that you did with somebody who was just your age, who had mm-hmm. seen places that you had seen, and how he was homeless and you are not. Mm-hmm. What, what was different about your process out of the military, your transition? I really, I can't pinpoint that. Um, there were enough similarities that... There was. I mean, he kind of... I, I think the one thing that might have separated us was I joined the military for the GI benefits and wanted to go to college. I always wanted to go to college. Whereas he kind of didn't use the military as a stepping stone. And actually most of the, or all of the individuals that joined the military didn't see the military as a stepping stone, but kind of like a last-ditch effort at some kind of successful life um, relative to what they had. I always wanted to go to the military to use it to go to college. When, when I got discharged, I had a broken arm. I had to go through surgery. I kind of had a drug addiction for a bit, and I'm not sure if that's related or whatever. But after a while, I realized that I should probably still go to college, um, whereas he didn't have that, that initial reason for going to, into the military for college. So once he left the military, he had no other options. Um, he had no other prospects of a successful life, quote-unquote. So I really think that might be the difference between someone that succeeds out of the military and someone that doesn't succeed. Um, it's just using the military as a last option or using the military as some kind of means to an end.
You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, and my guest is Keith Allen Howie. He's an Army veteran and a master's student in the sociology department here at Fordham. Howie interviewed 10 homeless or formerly homeless veterans, trying to see if the military actually shaped the social lives of veterans in some way that increased the likelihood that they would be homeless someday. He focused on the abrupt transition between military and civilian life, when he says it can feel like a whole social network has been cut off to veterans, and how he explored the prevalence of drug and alcohol abuse in the military. Take me on a base. How easy is it to get drunk on a base oh how easy is it to get high on a base it's a i mean i never got high on a base um but i know um some people that did when i was on base i was 19 well i, I joined the military when i was 18 um went through basic training uh 19 um was pre-trained to go to iraq um, during that time there was supposed to be no alcohol for individuals that were going to iraq because it was all training um, there's usually... Not to mention you were underage. Yeah, well, well that was the, the least of concerned, I guess. There is usually an enlistments club, like a regular club, kind of like any club that you would see around here, except most of the people are in uniform or in some kind of civilian clothes. And it's on base or just Yeah, off? It, it's on base. Um, and then there's an officer club for mainly officers, but sometimes enlist, enlistees can also go there. Um, and that's just on base. Um, and then outside, usually Army Town Sprout, sprout up. If you go around Fort Dix, New Jersey, um, which is where I was for a while, um, you'll see a lot of tattoo parlors, mainly tattoo parlors, dry cleaners, and um, bars, bars and liquor stores, pretty much because that's all a soldier really needs. Um, you take your uniforms out, you go maybe get a haircut or something, but there's really only those three things out there. So if you don't want to go on, on base to go to their clubs, and you can go outside, go to the bars around there. You're not going to get carded. If you're wearing a uniform and you go on base, no one's going to card you. And then also a, a big thing about the military is obviously the trust and the bonds that you make with your team. So if you have an overaged um, sergeant like I did, then it's it's really nothing to have him come in with alcohol and stuff and just drink on, in the barracks. Um, so you don't even have to leave your barracks. So how often is it happening that guys are just hanging out drinking together? I really can't generalize that, but I know that underage drinking, I did a lot, um, just because there's really nothing else to do on, on campus or on base. And it kind of keeps the bonds fresh. Like if a lot of times when you're in, in combat or whatever, you always talk about like the, the drunk things that you do um, on base or how you want to get drunk or whatever, just because there's really no other common ground that you have. Um, so this becomes kind of just typical conversation because you really have nothing else to talk about it's the team sport yeah 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 no i mean people drink in college they graduate and a lot of them aren't aren't without homes what's yeah, the difference um, what's the difference i, I think the discharge process is really a big thing i was discharged before my sergeant um who was discharged a different time than the driver who re-enlisted so we all have our individual experiences, and I kind of try to keep in touch with my sergeant every Memorial Day or Labor Day. He'll call me, but I really get no social benefit from him. So um, it's not the drinking alone or the substance abuse alone? It, I mean, you the can't whole... really pinpoint one aspect of the military and say that's why there's homeless veterans, but it, it's the nature of the military altogether. And as well, like you can come back from when you leave the uh, college, you might live with your parents for a while, but you're looking for a job. 
a lot of times veterans go home. They have a, a savings that they live off of for a while. Um, they start hanging out with bad crowds. They don't have the skills necessary to get certain jobs, and the entry-level jobs are being replaced by um, people out of high school, out of college. So eventually, they the veteran lives with their family, but they kind of outstay their welcome because you don't want your 26-, 27-year-old kid living with you when he doesn't even have job prospects, um, whereas a college student coming back probably has a job after a certain amount of time. Um, so they don't really wear out their welcome as much. Um, as well, they have friends who just graduated at the same time. So I, th- I think that that would be the difference between leaving the military and leaving college. In your thesis paper, you talk about how the current theory about what causes homelessness is not, you don't think it rings true. Mm. And so the way homelessness is being addressed. Yeah, gen- general homelessness is seen as, there's two causes for general homelessness, the the individual perspective and then the structural perspective. The individual perspective says that um, the reason why there are homeless individuals is because they have some kind of individual problem, um, such as mental illness, substance abuse, something inside of them. It's on them. Yeah, one reason or the other. In the, the veteran population, that's the PTSD or the, the drug abuse. That, that would be the individual side of veteran homelessness. And then the structural position says that society creates the conditions that not everyone can get a house, not everyone can get a a job. Um, so under that perspective would be the lack of low-income housing, the decrease of real wages. Um, real wages is a wage versus inflation. Someone making $10 an hour today versus someone making $10 an hour 19, in 1960s. There's a huge difference, and the real wage is declining versus inflation. These are conditions that create general homelessness. Um, And then in the veteran um, structural perspective, um, the need for military members to move around a lot, Um, the need for military members not to be able to get an education because they have to do their their duties in the military. Um, These are structural positions, structural aspects of veteran homelessness. And that's usually in academic literature. And what happens is once it's in academic literature, um, a lot of the organizations kind of pick one side or the other. So there are organizations that try to help veterans or general homeless individuals get housing or get a job, and they kind of ignore the individual perspective. They don't help them get the treatment for the PTSD or the drug abuse or the mental illness. Um, And then on the other side, there's people that try to give homeless veterans or the general population the individual treatments that they need, like the mental illness, the drug abuse, and stuff like that, but they don't really set them up with jobs or housing. Um, So they're really only treating half the problem. There's a couple academics that are saying that we really have to combine these, these issues because no organization that takes one side or the other is going to adequately and efficiently help homelessness in the general population or the veteran population. That's one of the benefits of doing interviews is that you get to hear how both sides of this debate actually really play into homeless veterans. Um, they have to move a lot, around a lot. They, they don't have the housing needs met when they leave. Um, there's an abrupt discharge. They have the PTSD. They have the mental illnesses. They have the um, alcohol and drug addictions. It would be unfair to only look at one side or the other. Through interviews, you have to kind of combine that. And one way that I did that was showing the, the social supports because social supports can help you stave off or remedy mental illnesses. Or if you're 
if you have social supports that don't do alcohol or can help you stay away from alcohol and drugs, and that helps you there. Um, but they also give you the opportunities and the information on housing um, or give you the connections for jobs and stuff like that. So social supports just seems to be a good way to bring these two um, issues together or the, the two sides of the issues together. So people who find themselves to be leaving the military, people who find themselves to already be homeless, you just want to you just want to make sure they have as much social support as in friends, mentors, you know, getting their family involved with their transition process. Yeah. I mean, there's there's benefits to having positive social supports. And there are organizations that are really starting towards this. Did you see an organization that was really already doing this or, or almost there? Um, I want to say Veterans Across America, um, which is an organization that I just looked at. They kind of link military veterans that are on the cusp of becoming homeless or maybe homeless and put them together with mentors of corporations that were also veterans. Um, I didn't get any of the interviews there, but it just seems to be a really good organization. Um, there are other organizations that are looking at this mentor-type program, um, either asking people that graduated from the program to come back and mentor um, individuals that are just starting the program, um, which helps the people that graduated these programs um, stay connected um, with someone that's positive, as well as help the people that are just starting this program kind of show them the way. Thank you so much for taking the time no to talk problem. with me. Keith Allen Howie just finished his master's degree in sociology at Fordham University. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Find us on Facebook. We are WFUV's Fordham Conversations. Or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as FOCON, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be in this seat next week. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 730. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson.